want you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of John chapter 1. Gospel of John chapter 1. And then we're going to let the children be dismissed. All right, the junior church, Mrs. Hoff is in the back, and I think someone else is helping her out back there. <clears throat> Gospel of John chapter 1. Good to get into the new year with a time of worship, celebrating the Lord's presence. And I want us to turn our hearts this morning to the Word of God, which Lord willing will be our guidance in the year that is before us. John chapter 1, and I want to begin reading in verse 19. Uh, Last week we started a three-part series in the life of John the Baptist. And what we looked at last week was the courage of John the Baptist. Uh, That is what made him such a mighty and powerful spokesman for God in the New Testament time period when he arrived on the scene. This morning, I want to focus on the message of John the Baptist. Now, I can, I can summarize it fairly simple in just a few words from John chapter 1 and verse 29. The message of John the Baptist was, Behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. Now, I would argue that that would make a great New Year's resolution. Behold, ooh, Bobby and I were talking about building, you didn't see that happen or did you? Okay. We're talking about building a new pulpit. Now we have a reason to. Um, that was kind of weird. It actually just floated up. I didn't lift it up. Uh, what a way to start the year saying, Lord, what I want through my life is that people, is to know that people, when they see me, would be beholding the Lamb of God. That there would be something about my life that makes Jesus attractive to others to the degree that when he shows up in their life they follow him not me because that is the story of john the baptist a man of apparently incredible charisma attracted huge following small first but then growing and growing to the degree that the religious establishment became curious about his methods and his authority john's greatest joy in life was behold the lamb of god And when you see him through my life, don't follow me. Follow him. What a passion for us to adopt for the year that is before us. John, we know, did that, first of all, courageously. He did that courageously as we studied last week in spite of all of the costs that were associated with accepting this God-given responsibility of being the spokesman for the Messiah. John freely and willingly accepted it. John 1 And verse 19 begins by saying, this was the testimony of John. This was the reputation or the message or the proclamation of John when the Jewish leaders sent priests and temple assistants from Jerusalem to ask John whether he claimed to be the Messiah. So, so great was his impact that the religious establishment had questions about his identity. So great was his working, his power, his speech that the religious establishment could no longer ignore him. His ministry was having too big of an impact and was too significant. Now, let me, let me just for the sake of context try to set this up for you. I believe that John chapter 1 and verse 19 follows the baptism of Christ. Okay? God, the Gospel of John chapter 1 is a passage of Scripture that I believe covers three days in the life of Christ. 
Okay, let me just chart that up for you real quickly in John chapter 1. Verse 19 is the beginning of these leaders coming to interrogate John. If you flip down then to verse 29, it says the next day John saw Jesus coming. And then verse 35, the following day John was again standing with two of his disciples. Okay, so you have condensed into this chapter of Scripture a three-day period in the life of Christ that I believe for numerous reasons follows after the public baptism of Jesus. Okay? Now, you'd have to kind of go back into Matthew and piece together the chronology, but here, here's the indication for that. John says, um, let me see if I can get this passage for you. Okay, go to verse 32, just to set the chronology for you so you kind of get an idea of where we are. Then John said, I saw the Holy Spirit descending like a dove from heaven and resting upon him. When did John see that? So last week at the baptism of Christ, correct? So this passage of scripture is after John has seen the heavenly verifying sign that Jesus is the Son of God. Because God's witness to John was, when you see the Spirit of God descending and sitting on him, that is my Son. John has already seen that happen. Now, he, his intention to expose the majesty and glory of the Lamb of God, is just filled with deep passion. It is apparently at least six weeks from the time of the baptism of Christ until this public proclamation of John in John chapter 1. Because what occurs after the baptism of Christ in Matthew and Mark, and in the Gospel of Luke? He goes out in the wilderness to be tempted. Actually, it's in, in Matthew and Luke. He goes out to be tempted. After that period of temptation testing he comes back onto the public scene and john then begins to really push the emphasis that he is the one that you need to be following and i need to get out of the way okay he does that by proclaiming the message of the glory of christ exalting him now when the religious establishment in john chapter one comes to john they are asking him very specific and pointed questions they come saying are you the messiah notice verse 20 he flatly denied it. I am not the Messiah. If you go into the Greek, simply in emphatic wording and tone, John is saying, do not follow me. I am not the Messiah. I am not worthy of that kind of attention. I am not worthy of that kind of honor. I do not have a status like Christ. And I think that perspective ultimately is what will cause us to understand why John was so persistent in proclaiming the glory of Christ. He understood who he was. He had a God-given mission, but it didn't make him great. What was, the one that was great was Jesus Christ. And he was intent on promoting the Savior. So, they come, verses 19 to 20. Are you the Messiah? He flatly denied, without hesitation or second thought. Verse 21. And they keep, it's fascinating how they keep pressing him. Well then, who are you, they ask. Are you Elijah? And what's John's response? No, I'm not Elijah. Now, you go back to Matthew chapter 1 and, or, or I'm sorry, Luke chapter 2, and you will find that when John comes, it says that he will come in the spirit and power of Elijah. And later Jesus says, if you will accept it, he was Elijah. He's not talking about reincarnation. He's talking about one who is in the order of Old Testament courageous prophets who had a powerful message from God to deliver. And they did that faithfully and fervently. That's the story of John. So they ask him, are you Elijah? Are you deserving of that kind of an honor? Which is a reflection back into the book of Malachi chapter 4. Elijah is coming. John is Elijah. 
in the sense that he comes in the power and strength of Elijah. He's Elijah-like. Next question they ask him at the end of verse 21 is very powerful. Draws us all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy. Are you then the prophet? And you say, Pastor Tim, what do you what is what do they mean when they say to John, Are you the prophet? If you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 18, you will find that Moses fulfills his God-given mission and calling and receives great accolades from God. He is a treasured servant of God. You can go into the book of Hebrews chapter 11 and find out the incredible faithfulness and service of Moses. And God says, there's going to come a prophet after you, Moses. He will be the prophet. He will be the prophet that all the... And here's the idea. He will be the apex of prophets. He will be the prophet that all the Old Testament prophets anticipated. The clear, truthful proclaimer of the Word of God. They come to John and say, well, given the following you're receiving, are you that prophet? Are you the prophet that Moses spoke of? That would cause the memory of all of the prophets to fade? And John refuses to accept that title. Now what is John doing? Are you the Messiah? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? No, emphatically, no, no, no. What is John refusing to do? John is refusing to accept any human glory. Because he is intent on communicating a message. And he knows if he receives glory for himself, he will in some way diminish the message that he has been called to proclaim. He wants nothing in his life to distract from the exaltation of Christ that he is about to begin. He is right now going to put on the table, in a sense, almost the, the, the hinge point of human history. That all of the Old Testament prophecies that pointed forward to, that anticipated a coming one, are about to be fulfilled. And John in no way wants to be in the way when Jesus Christ comes on the scene. He wants to diminish and he wants Christ to be seen in all of his glory for who he most certainly and wonderfully is. Well, then they ask the question, if you're not those three, then who are you? What, what do you say about yourself? Verse 23. John quotes from Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3. What does he say? I am a voice. Here's what's fascinating. He could have said, I am a prophet. He could have said that. He said, I'm the prophet that comes in the power and likeness of Elijah. I mean, Jesus will later say, if you're willing to accept it, he was Elijah. He was the fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy. But John will have nothing of that in his life. Why? Because he is committed to the exaltation and glory of Christ. Because he knows that Jesus Christ can do things for people that he has no capacity to do. Folks, let this conviction settle into your life. People really need to know Jesus, not me. Now, if I can be the signboard or the, what does John call himself? I am the voice. Okay? I'm the breath, I'm the exhale that carries the glorious and powerful message of Christ to the world around me. I am a voice. And what is John saying? I am quite glad to be that too. And he can cite justification for his ministry from Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3. I am God's voice speaking to you. But I, please, do not get consumed in who I am. I'm just a voice. Crying in the wilderness. Make a straight way and get ready for the revelation of the glory of Almighty God. 
Verse 27 is fascinating also, if you just look at this real quickly. John said to them, I baptize with water, verse 26, but right here in the crowd is someone you do not know. Meaning what? John has seen him identified as the Son of God at his baptism, right? And John's saying, right here in the midst, in this group of people, is one that you do not know. And what does he say? He will soon begin his ministry, and I will be his proclaimer. I am not even worthy to be his slave, let alone what? Let alone his prophet. Even though John is, John doesn't want those kind of accolades. He says, I am the voice crying in the wilderness. I am the one who is simply a billboard painted with the message of Christ. See him, not me. See him. Now here's the question that comes up then. As John carries out this ministry that appears not to be a ministry of duty, but of delight, the question that comes to mind is this. Why is it that for John, proclaiming Christ was such a delight? Why was it something that caused him to sacrifice so much and to be so courageous as we looked at last week? What is it about the Savior that causes John to even pour out his life so that Jesus Christ will be known? What is it about him? And I want to give you four truths, I think, that emerge from this text that will help us to see the message of John and why he was so intent on proclaiming it. Some of these are very simple. The first one is this. John was excited about Christ, proclaiming and exalting Him, because Jesus was in fact the fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecy. Jesus Christ was in fact the fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecy. John, when he talks about bringing Christ to the forefront, in verse 23 says, I am the voice shouting in the wilderness, clearly a call from Malachi and a call from Isaiah 40. I'm the, I am the one who is proclaiming the anticipated one. Prepare a straight pathway for the Lord's coming. I have come to expose the one, to reveal the one who is the climax of all that has been spoken about in the Old Testament. Now they contemplate the notion that John might be that one. He may be the apex or the climax, but what does John say? Oh, I have nothing to do with that. That is not who I am. There is a more glorious one coming. Don't get caught up in my ministry. Get caught up in the message that I have come to proclaim. John was prophesied for a specific purpose. That specific purpose was to point to Jesus. John wants that to be very clear. And Jesus is the one who comes on, on this heap of Old Testament prophecy and in his life fulfills it. Folks, here's a glorious truth for you. John could look at his ministry and find justification for it in the books of the Old Testament. He could find justification for the message about Christ that he was proclaiming throughout the Old Testament. So that when Jesus comes on the scene, he is the only religious leader who has ever come to planet Earth with these kinds of credentials. He is the only one. You can study all kinds of world religions, but you will never find a prophesied one who comes in such a way fulfilling so many prophecies from such a distant period of time. Not one. And I believe this with all my heart. It is one of the things that sets Jesus Christ apart from all religious leaders. 
I think his resurrection is also something that uniquely sets him apart from all world religions. His death on the cross uniquely sets him apart from all world religions. But for John, for this day, he looks at Jesus and says, there he is. He is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament longings. And you can do this. Luke chapter 24, Jesus could start with Moses in the book of Genesis and point to himself over and over and over again, proving what? That in his death, he was indeed the Lamb of God that had come to take away the sin of the world. John was excited about Christ because he was the fulfillment of all of these longings. Deuteronomy 18.15, are you the prophet? When was that written? About 1445. Almost 1500 years prior to the coming of the Savior. Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And I could go on and on and on. Demonstrating the glory and the uniqueness of Jesus Christ in his coming. John was excited because he was, the, he was what the true Jew was anticipating. He was like Simeon, wasn't he? When Simeon held the Christ child in his arms, what did he say? He said, Lord, now let your servant depart, for I have seen your what? Your salvation. Prophesied throughout the Old Testament. Second thought I want to leave you with this morning is this. John was intent about proclaiming the exalting Christ because he is in fact Lord. Look at the end of verse 23. It says, prepare a straight way for the Lord's coming. Now, I just want to go after one word here briefly. The word Lord in the Old Testament where he's quoting from is the word Adonai. Now, sometimes we sing the song, praise Adonai. Okay? I think it's important you understand what you're saying when you sing that. Adonai means supreme master and supreme ruler. It's the same word that's quoted in Psalm chapter or Psalm 110 and verse 1, where David says, The Lord Yahweh Jehovah said to my Lord Adonai. Yahweh, God, creator, is addressing the supreme ruler, Christ. When John says, Prepare the way for the Lord, for Adonai from the Old Testament, who's he talking about? He's talking about God. John understands that Jesus Christ is himself Lord. That is to say, he is God in human flesh. You go back to Matthew chapter 1 and verse 24. At the birth of Christ, what does the word of God say? You will call his name Emmanuel. Why? Because he is God with us. Can you then begin to understand why John's greatest fear is that people would misinterpret his ministry as a grab at popularity or power. The one he had been called to promote and proclaim is in fact God himself. And that proclamation for John became a serious, delightful responsibility that he passionately sought to fulfill for the glory of the Savior, Jesus Christ. So strong is his understanding of the person of Christ that in verse 26, just follow along with me, John 1, 26, John told them, I baptize with water, but right here in the crowd is someone you do not know who will soon begin his ministry. I am not worthy to be his slave. Now, keep in mind, the reason there were so many people out there with John is because they saw John as an elevated prophet. They thought he might be the prophet. They confused him with the Messiah. So John was receiving what? A lot of recognition and fame. But he wants nothing to do with it. 
He pushes it down and says, I want you to see Jesus. He's God. I'm not. Folks, here's something we need to get straight. God can do things for people that I simply cannot do. And so I need to be careful in my relationships with people that I am always pointing them to the source of life, to the giver of life, to the Savior. Why? He is God. His capacities to meet their needs and to help them and to strengthen them are without limit. In verse 30, John, speaking of Christ, says this, He is the one I was talking about when I said, Soon a man is coming who is far greater than I am, for he existed when? Long before I did. Well, here's an interesting thought. Who was born first? Jesus or John the Baptist? John. John was six months older than Christ, and yet his bold public proclamation is what? He existed before me. Now, if you're in the crowd and you know the chronology, you know the family line a little bit, Jesus and John, from a human perspective, are what? They're cousins. They're cousins. And people are familiar with the age differential. And John talking about Jesus says, He existed before me. He is eternal. I'm not. He is infinite. I have limits. And that's why John is intent on pointing them to the Savior, who is Himself God, capable and able to meet every need that they have in their life. John was excited about his message because Jesus was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He is God in flesh. And as Lord, He deserves our absolute and full allegiance. John gave that to Christ. The question I have to ask myself is this. Does God have my full allegiance? Is what I am most concerned about how people see Jesus through my life? And I think I can answer that question for myself and say that is not my heart all the time. I know it is the right answer to the question who deserves all the glory in your life. I know the right answer to that question. But I'll tell you what I struggle with. I struggle with self-sacrifice. I struggle with a verse like Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, present yourself a living sacrifice. Holy, acceptable to God. It is your reasonable response to who He is. That's a paraphrase of Romans 12, 1. It is what He deserves. Why? Because of who He is. John wanted them to understand that his throwing down his life for the glory and exaltation of Christ was due to the fact that Jesus was himself God. The third thought I want us to look at this morning, and this kind of gets to the heart of what John's after. In verses 32 to 34, notice what John says. It says, Then John said, I saw the Holy Spirit descending like a dove from heaven and resting upon him. I didn't know he was the one. I was unsure. I was ambivalent. But when God sent me to baptize with water, He told me, when you see the Holy Spirit descending and resting upon someone, He is the one you are looking for. He is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. This is what sets Jesus apart from John. What was John given? John was given a ministry of externals, wasn't he? John was given an external baptism that the Bible says you can wash yourself with water in the book of Isaiah all you want and it will not what? It won't take away your sin. John doesn't want them to think that he is the Savior or that the ritual cleansing that he practiced in baptism was the means of salvation. No, the means of salvation comes 
through the Holy Spirit. What is John saying? Okay, and let me just give you the point if you're taking the notes. His ministry, he is Lord, he is God in flesh. His ministry is superior. Why? Because when Jesus comes into a life, what does he bring? He brings life change. He is the one who transforms your life. He is the one that fulfills 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passing away. Behold, everything is becoming new. John couldn't do that for people. He could convince them of their sin, show them their need for repentance, but he could not change their life. And he didn't want them to think that because I've been through religious rituals, that somehow my life has now improved or dramatically changed. These people needed a personal encounter with the Savior, and John is intent on making that message painfully clear. I want you to turn back to the book of Matthew chapter 3 and verse 11. Do you find this other statement about the baptizing work of Christ in contrast to the baptizing work of John? Matthew chapter 3 and verse 11, John again speaking to clarify that his ministry is important, but the ministry of Jesus is far superior. The ministry of John has a temporal effect. The ministry of Jesus has an eternal effect. John says in Matthew 3 and verse 13, or 11, I'm sorry. He says, I baptize you with water. I baptize with water those who turn from their sins and turn to God. Meaning, I give an external validation when there is genuine repentance. But the work that he does is purely an external working. Notice what he says then. He says, but someone is coming soon who is far greater than I am. So much greater. And this is, this is what's fascinating, this contrasting. John is a phenomenally popular man. But when he talks about Christ, what does he say? He is so much greater than I am. I am not even worthy to be his slave. I can't carry his shoes. That's what John's saying. You remember this from other passages in the King James? I'm not worthy to untie the thong on his sandal. I don't have the right to even do that, to get that close to be in proximity. He is that great and glorious. Why is he so great? He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Serious words. That for any biblically literate Jew, which is John's audience, they would think automatically back to the book of Ezekiel and chapter 36. Let me read for you these words. A prophecy of the superior ministry of the coming Messiah. I will give you, he says a new heart, and I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Folks, have you ever wanted God just to do that in your life? Go to God and say, God, I am so weary of and tired of my stubborn heart. When you first came to Christ, what you were really asking for, and you may not have even known it, was a heart transplant. A brand new life. You know who does that? The book of Ezekiel says it is the Messiah. When Jesus comes on the scene, John knows what he's saying. He says he's the one who baptizes with the Spirit. Why? Because the Spirit is the regenerating Spirit of God who takes old men, dead men, and makes them alive. He takes us out of darkness and brings us into light, out of death and into new life. Folks, is it any wonder that John 
would not want people to be attracted to him because he knows his capacity to affect change in people's lives is limited. The ministry of Christ is unlimited. Jesus Christ has never met a person whose heart he couldn't change. And he does it through this work that he calls the baptism of his spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says everyone that is in Christ is there as a result of the baptism of the spirit of God. What does he do? He takes the heart of stone. He takes it out. He gives you a heart that is suddenly sensitive to the work of God. Folks, can I tell you this? Never forget that. Never forget when God changed your heart. When He made a hard heart sensitive. When He overwhelmed your rebellion and just radically did something in your life that an external ritual could never accomplish. That's what John knew. He knew that his ministry was vitally important and was prophesied in the Old Testament, but that his ministry could not bring lasting life change. And that's why when Jesus comes on the scene, John is saying, he's who it's all about. It's not about me. But what is John saying? John's saying, I find joy in this. I find joy in this. How many of you have ever had the opportunity just to help someone in a significant way that changed their life with a little bit of help and you walked away feeling like, you know what? That brought me great joy. John stands at this incredible Climax of the Old Testament, beginning of the New Testament, New Covenant, cross of Christ is coming. And what is John saying? His ministry is so superior to mine. And folks, let me say this. Any external rite, ritual, act cannot accomplish in your life what Jesus Christ by His Spirit can do. Nothing. Nothing. That's why when we serve communion in this church, I will say this. Do not think that by taking communion, you increase your chances of having a relationship with God because the externals can't do it. What every person needs is a heart transplant. They need a changed life. And that is what God, through His Spirit, does in the life of everyone who will believe. He brings life change. This is what Jesus is referring to in John chapter 3. If you just turn ahead one page, John chapter 3, and look at verse 5 with me. Jesus replied, and this is as he's talking to Nicodemus, another religious leader who's caught up in the externals, but has a heart that's beginning to change. The truth is, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and what? And the Spirit. Likely reference in water is to physical birth, which is out of water, and then this spiritual birth, which is by the Spirit of God, when He gives you a new heart. Notice what Jesus then says. Humans can reproduce only human life. But the Holy Spirit does what? He gives new life from heaven. He can literally take the darkest heart and convert it for His glory. And how does He do that? He does it through the work of His Spirit. Then Jesus says, So Nicodemus, don't be surprised at my statement. You must be born from above is the literal translation you're born again or from above you need a converting work of the spirit of god that is what john's looking forward to jesus will be the life changer john says i can't change your life but here's the one that can and he points forward to the glorious coming and work of jesus christ when you have the spirit of god in your life when your heart is changed by the glory of god there is for you hope 
for permanent change in your life. If you're trying to become a Christian by reformation, Jesus says you must be born from above. You need to have a powerful encounter with God whereby He takes the heart of stone out and He gives you a heart that is now alive, a heart of flesh sensitive to His work. Romans 8.13 puts it this way. It says, if you live according to the sinful nature, by the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Galatians 5.16 If you live by the Spirit, you will no longer gratify the deeds of the flesh. You know what that's saying? There is hope for change. You may be here this morning saying, I struggle with persistent patterns of sin. How can that change? Go to the one that John pointed to. Whose ministry is superior to the ministry of any person in this room. His name is Jesus Christ. He is the one who can change your life. The last reason John was so committed to proclaiming the message of Christ is because Jesus Christ is the long-anticipated Lamb of God. He brings forgiveness. John chapter 1 and verse 29, which in a sense is the, the climax of this anticipation, John's public ministry, people coming, who do you think you are? Where do you get your authority? And when Jesus comes on the scene, John experiences the greatest joy in his life. John 1 29, here's what he says. The next day, after this interrogation by the religious establishment, John saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, look, there is the Lamb of God, but He doesn't stop there. Look, there is the Lamb of God. He takes away the sin of the world. What is John saying? I am not a sin remover. I am not a sin bearer. When you're looking at Christ, who are you looking at? You're looking at the one who fulfills the entire anticipation of the Old Testament. Now you can go back to the Old Testament and identify that sacrifice, which was death, was always what God required in order to temporarily cover over sin. You go back to the book of Genesis, at the fall in the Garden of Eden, and what do you find? Man sins, they are covered with animal skins, which indicates that someone had to die in order for their sin to be covered. You can read the story about Abraham, who was looking for a substitute for his son. And when his son says, Isaac says to Abraham, his dad, where's the lamb? In Abraham's mind, the lamb was going to be who? His son. What does Abraham say to Isaac? He says, the Lord will provide. And when they get to the top of that mountain, the sacrifice of his son is about to take place. God stops the hand of Abraham, and what does he say? Look there. Is a ram caught in the thicket a substitutionary sacrifice for the life of your son? Provided by who? By God Himself. Rush with me into the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Leviticus, the book of Numbers. And what do you get into? You get into this perpetual system of sacrifice. You find priests in the Old Testament taking their hands and laying on them on the head of a, of a ram or of a lamb. And what do they do? They confess the sins of the people. Why? So that in figure, the ram or the lamb, when it died, would bear the sins of the people and in their death, pay the price for their sin. But then this haunting echo is present in the Old Testament. The blood of bulls and goats can what? Never take away sin. And so you find this 
perpetual sacrifice. There were daily sacrifices. There were morning sacrifices and evening sacrifices and festival sacrifices of lambs. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. And throughout the Old Testament, what is God doing? He's creating an anticipation of the coming of the Lamb of God who when John sees Him, John says, behold, there's the Lamb of God. What does He do? He bears away the sin of the world. Folks, this is, if you will, in a sense, the climax of biblical revelation. The Old Testament looks forward to this. The New Testament looks back to this. This is the centerpiece. This is why John finds such great joy. And when Jesus comes on the scene, he does not want them to mistake. There is the Lamb of God. He takes away the sin of the world. He does for you what I could never do. And in coming, what is He doing? He is fulfilling all of the Old Testament prophecies. All of the Old Testament hopes. All of the frustration of Old Testament believers. Because all their sin needed sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. And when Jesus Christ comes, John can look at Him and say, Behold the Lamb of God. He takes away the sin of the world. Now here's the question I have for you this morning as we close. Whose sin does Jesus Christ take away? Whose sin does Jesus take away? In a potential sense, I believe John 1.29 is speaking. He takes away the sin of the world. But then when you move further into the Gospel of John or back in the Gospel of John to chapter 1 and verse 12, notice what it says. Just turn back there real quick. John 1 and verse 12. It says, but to all who believed him, that is Jesus, and accepted him, he gave them the right to become children of God. They are reborn. Because who experiences this forgiving work of the grace of God? John chapter 1 and verse 12 says, everyone who believes. Go to John chapter 3 and verse 16, an extension of the passage we looked at a few minutes ago. John 3 and verse 16 says, God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. Who is He? The Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. For who? Who has experienced this redeeming work of God's grace through Jesus? It says, so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish, but instead have everlasting life. Go to verse 36 of John 3. All who believe in God's Son have eternal life. Life. That is, they have the hope of life change now and life with God forever. John could not bring that. That's why John, when he comes, he points to Jesus and says, if you want hope, hope is found in Jesus. He is the life changer. But I want you to notice the second part of this verse. Those who do not obey the Son will never experience eternal life for the wrath of God remains upon them folks let me be very clear about one thing jesus christ on calvary's cross bore the wrath of god that you and i deserve the punishment for my sin isaiah 56 and verse 6 says he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows our iniquity was placed upon him and by his stripes his wounds we are healed That's why Christians should be the most humble people on the face of the planet. 
we have the hope of heaven, but it is not a result of ritual cleansing. It is not the result of religious performance. It is not the result of going to church, singing songs, giving. It is not the result of those things. It is because the Lamb of God came and bore away your sin. And God, through a work of His Spirit, drew you to faith and trust in Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you have never trusted Christ, then you're missing the message of John. The message of John in its climax is, Behold the Lamb of God. He's the one who takes away the sin of the world. He bears your guilt away so that you can receive His righteousness and forgiveness and have the hope of eternal life. This morning, if you have never trusted Christ, I would love to introduce you to John's Savior. I would love to introduce you to the Lamb of God who is the source of all of the praise that then pours out in the book of Revelation. Chapter 5. Let's read this verse in conclusion. Revelation chapter 5 and verse 6. You see, John is hung up on Christ, isn't he? He is preoccupied with Christ. Behold the Lamb of God. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. Pointing everybody there. Why? Well, I think the, the book of Revelation answers that question. Revelation chapter 5. We are in the, the sphere of the heavenly realm. Verse 6. John is looking for someone who can begin to unfold prophetic truth. Verse 6, he says, I looked and I saw what? A lamb that had been killed but was now standing between the throne and the four living beings and among the 24 elders. Go then to verse 9. Because what you're going to find is the obsession of John, the Baptist, is the obsession of heaven. And I believe it should be the obsession of every believer. Verse 9 says, They sang a new song with these words, You are worthy. What did John say? I'm not worthy. Don't follow me. Don't give me glory. He alone is worthy. He is the Lamb of God. He takes away the sin of the world. That is the message of Revelation. You are worthy to take the scroll and to break its seals. Why? For you were killed as what? As the Lamb of God. You bore our sins. And in coming to Christ, what do you do? You confess your sin to Christ. And what does He do? He bears them away. And you have the hope of eternal life. You were killed and with your blood you ransomed. You bought for God people from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests. And they will reign on the earth. Get down to verse 12. The Lamb is worthy. The Lamb who was killed to what? To receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Folks, do you see the climax here? When we get to heaven, we're going to do a lot of what John did. Behold the Lamb of God. He is the reason we are here. He takes away the sin of the world for everyone who will personally place faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. I wonder this morning as you consider the life of John, his message, is that the truth that we seek to share with the world around us? Because I believe he is our only hope. When I go out into the world, do I prayerfully seek opportunities to share the glorious good news of Christ with the world that so desperately needs to hear it 
And this morning, if you've never trusted Christ, here's what he said. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. If you're here this morning, the message of John is your hope. You want freedom from sin? You want the hope of eternal life? You want freedom from religious performance? Maybe you attend this church. Maybe you come here on Sunday mornings thinking that because I go, I I somehow earn a place with God. I think according to the words of John, you're sadly mistaken. But according to the words of John, there is hope for you. There is a Savior. And His name is Jesus Christ. He was the obsession of John. And here's what we ought to pray, I believe, in this new year. May Jesus Christ become our personal obsession. Knowing Him and making Him known to the world around us because He is the only one that can change people's lives. I can have an impact on people, but not eternal. Only Jesus can change their destiny. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? Father.